0: All right, let's take our Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're picking back up in our study, our exposition of this book, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1, I'm, excuse me, chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 11, chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. And uh, just to recap just a little bit, you recall how uh, Ecclesiastes is written by, most believe it to be Solomon, I would hold that position too, and I think we see a lot of parallels and Connections to him, and he's known as the preacher, uh, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, and uh, he seems to fit uh, the right uh, the right details of who the author is. But he is uh, given us a really a, a, a search of life, and what the conclusion is with life, as you see in the be, be very beginning, is that all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And he's going to come through several things that uh, have to deal with life and uh, uh, teach us some things about those things, but. I think it's important we understand that he is viewing the world from the lens of a sin-cursed world, uh, a life that uh, has been ruined by sin, and uh, as we come through the whole of this book, we see a central theme and really the focus of the purpose of life. And so tonight, we're going to look at what he brings out to us in these first 11 verses of chapter 2, and that is the vanity of pleasure, the vanity of pleasure. And so, let's begin reading here, and then we'll come through the text together, and uh, we'll we'll glean some things from it. Notice that Solomon says in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had had been before me in Israel, in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward of all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it and behold all was vanity and striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Pleasure is a prominent aspect of human life isn't it especially in this world. Now Let's start with a question, what is it that makes you happy or that pleases you? What is it that will truly satisfy your life to the fullest, to the point in which you would need nothing else? Think of that question for yourself, this question, maybe fill in the blank, for me to be happy, I need blank. What would you put in that blank? Well, I know what our kids would like, they always want a new toy, right? Anytime we're in the store and we go down the toy aisle, David always wants one of the cars or trucks. And he's got like a 1,000 cars or trucks. And I usually say, David, why do you want another car or truck? Don't you, why don't you try something else? And he'll just say, I just need more trucks. I just need more cars. In his, in his mind, he thinks that's what's going to make him happy. That's his desire, right? Most people have various answers to that question, what they'd put in the blank. For some, their answer would be more money would make me happy. For some, it might be a new car. A longer vacation, a better job, a bigger house, a longer life, maybe the latest tech, right? People sit in line at Apple Store waiting for the latest iPhone. For I've, I remember when they first came out with iPhones. They would sit outside the store for a whole day or so, right? But two years later, what are they doing? They're waiting to do the same thing to trade in the one that they waited for earlier, Thinking that that will satisfy him. See, the world around us and ourselves in our flesh, we long for things in this world to make us happy and satisfy us in our flesh. But is there anything in this world, anything at all, that can truly make a person happy and satisfied to the point where they lack nothing? The answer is no. There's not one thing in this world that will truly give us lasting satisfaction. And that really is the point Solomon makes through this text and through this chapter as we look at the scope of the book. We've already examined Solomon set out on a search for significance, for satisfaction. And if anyone qualifies for conducting this search in an earthly manner, I think Solomon would be the guy. I mean, gifted such great wisdom and knowledge in his humanity Uh, as a king in Israel, having all the riches and wealth that he had. If anyone could conduct this search, it was him. And that's exactly what he did. And in doing so, we find that his life went down a great spiritual decline, didn't it? We read through his life. Now, Solomon's testing of all things under the sun uh, and his example, understand that it is sufficient for us to learn from. We don't have to go do all that he did. All right, that's the reason God gave us the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We may think that we need this or need that to make us happy or to satisfy us, but Solomon essentially is telling us through this passage, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because he's going to conclude that with all the things that we think we need to satisfy us and make us happy, they're not really going to satisfy us and give us lasting happiness. So what do we learn from this text? Notice with me in our notes you notice I just have one heading, and I was already told this is looking kind of short. But you know my answer to that, right? Don't get too excited. I've got three sub-points. Solomon's pleasures left him empty. Solomon's pleasures left him empty. And to be honest, I had a second point. It was going to include the next seven or eight verses, but I got too much, so I figured I'd be merciful. We're not going to go that far tonight. We'll just go through verse 11. I want you to see, firstly, the endeavor of Solomon, what what he's setting out to do. You look at verse 1, what does he say? I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Now, the word pleasure can also be translated as mirth. It's translated that way in Ecclesiastes 7.4. In some translations, it is here. And this this Hebrew word refers to joy. It's It's feeling as well as its display, a jubilation. And so Solomon is seeking the feeling of joy and jubilation, the satisfaction in experiences and in things of this world. Now, isn't that what the rest of the world around us routinely does by way of life? They say within their own heart, enjoy yourself and take in all that will satisfy you. In fact, then when we mention the term follow your heart, uh, that kind of advice, that typically is what that means. Follow your heart basically means go after what pleases you. Go after and do whatever pleases you. This is what the world seeks to do, to satisfy them. But Solomon has a certain aim in doing this, all right? His goal is to test his heart with pleasure. There's an experiment going on, an examination going on. To test his heart with pleasure. What, to find what is truly meaningful and satisfying. The same Hebrew word for test here is the one used in Genesis one, where God tested Abraham regarding his faith. So, so Solomon, he's conducting a, 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 a sincere and thorough test regarding pleasure and his heart. Now, his quick conclusion in verse 1, he just tells us right off the bat, right? Behold, it's all vanity. Behold, this also was vanity, pleasure itself, joy, jubilation, happiness, satisfaction, anything that we could take from this world, it is vanity. It is an empty pursuit. It is striving after the wind, something that is fleeting, that you can't grab onto or hold onto. You notice he says next in verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? Who doesn't like a good laugh, right? I, for one, love to laugh. In fact, you get around me long enough, I'm quite the jokester. I might even play a prank on you, and you weren't expecting the pastor to play a prank on you. I'll do it. You give me the opportunity. I love a good laugh. But even in laughter, is there really any lasting joy? Is there any lasting happiness and satisfaction? You ever heard a funny joke and the first time you heard it, it was just hilarious and got you giggled and you thought, man, that's just wonderful. It cheered you up. But does it have the same effect the second time you hear it? Or the third time you hear it? You ever heard a joke that somebody told you, but somebody else is going to tell you the same joke, and you already know where they're going, and you kind of have to pretend to laugh because, you know, its I already know where this is going. It doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't last. Even laughter doesn't last. And one can even laugh for a moment while still hurting inside. Proverbs 14, 13 says, even in laughter the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Solomon says, of laughter, it is mad. Laughter doesn't fix the pains of this sin-cursed world, does it? A lighthearted approach to life is really foolish in view of the tragic realities of a fallen world. Then he goes on to say of pleasure in this same verse. Verse 2, I said, of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? What use is it? And really, this is the question that has to follow All forms of pleasure in this world. What is it really? What does it actually do? What good is it? What good is it? The pleasure that he knew, it did not last. And so therefore, laughter and pleasure do not permanently satisfy. Now Solomon continues revealing his search in verse 3 and he says, notice, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, here's what I want you to see with this. Solomon is seeking to use a substance in his testing of pleasure. Isn't this the prominent pursuit in our day? How many millions of people in this world give themselves to alcohol as a means of finding fulfillment in their life Or, on the opposite side of that, as a means of making them forget that they don't have any other fulfillment. There's a two-sided coin to that, right? Solomon sought how to cheer his body with wine. Now, understand, wine can be a joyous thing when used as God intended it. We read through scriptures there is a balance of positive and negatives when it comes to this subject and issue. Solomon will say later, In Ecclesiastes 9, 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. But at the same time, wine can be a very sorrowful thing and a very destructive thing when it is misused and abused. Solomon also wrote this, Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine's a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So Scripture gives us positives and negatives to this, and how uh, wine can be used in an inappropriate manner, in a sinful manner, and in an appropriate manner. But here is the great problem we see in this matter. Many people in this world, what do they do? They look to a substance to satisfy their life. It doesn't just have to be wine. It could be drugs. People get hooked on drugs to try to satisfy their life. I'm not talking about just wine and wine and uh, uh, drugs, I'm talking about food too. There are literally people who are addicted to food and they simply can't stop eating. They, it's what satisfies them and gives them some temporary moment of, of relief. And so Solomon, he's doing the same thing but in a little different manner. He's, he's looking to the gift for satisfaction over the giver of the gift. Solomon is doing this, understand, not without any regard for what he's doing. He is, still has, a, uh, he, he has wisdom in which he's doing this in a conducting experiment. He notice he says, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So he wasn't like the prodigal in the sense that he left all common sense and then he came to himself, wasted his life away came to himself. Although we do see he went through an era of rebellion, I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying Solomon here is testing every single angle. He knew what it was to have the finest wines. He knew what it was to be drunk on wine. And guess what? Neither of those uses of wine gave him real lasting fulfillment in his life. That brings me to letter B. We see the endeavor of Solomon and how he's conducting this search. When now we see the enjoyment of Solomon. He just goes into some autobiographical detail of things he did, things he had, the way he enjoyed all the pleasures he could get. So he opened this section by giving a summary of these two categories, pleasure and laughter, and his detailed pursuit through indulgence. Now we see him indulging, and he indulges in some various things. We start out and see his architecture and his agriculture that he... Uh, that he partakes in as king in in Israel, in Jerusalem. Verse four through six, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Now, we look at this for a moment and he's not lying about all that he did. I mean, there's a lot of people like to exaggerate, you know, all they can do and all they've done. Solomon's not exaggerating here. He really has done great works. We, we have a record of his life in 1 Kings. So let's go read just a portion, all right? Uh, You've you got to read really the broad scope of his whole life and accomplishments, but for times' sake we won't because there's a lot of detail here. But let me just read verse uh, 1 through 12 of chapter 7 in 1 Kings. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window, opposite, uh, and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. You say, well, that's a lot of detail. This is showing how extravagant Solomon was. He made the hall of the pillars. Notice these different buildings he's making. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in the front with pillars and a canopy in the front of them. Verse 7, he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from the floor to rafters. He made house where he was to dwell, his own house where he's to dwell. In the other court of the hall was like workmanship. It was like, of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall of Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws back in front, even from the foundation to the, to the coping and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones, cut out according to the measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and the course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. That's just one brief description of his building and working. Several buildings that are mentioned here that he uses these, 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 these uh, great materials. Uh, these structures were made of the best materials in his day. They were done with the best craftsmanship. And beyond just the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem, he built great works elsewhere as he rebuilt other cities throughout Israel. 2 Chronicles 8, 1 through 6 will tell you about that. He's an architect, built the house of the Lord, which was the glory of ancient Israel, the temple. Then you find, look, the vineyards in our text, vineyards and gardens and parks with all kinds of fruit trees. It's almost as if he's trying to recreate a form of Eden in Israel, a paradise that once was lost to the curse of sin. He made pools for irrigation, and some of those pools are still found in Israel today. See, the glory of Solomon's accomplishments in Israel was astonishing to behold. We maybe take that to a modern-day application. There are many in this world who think that if they had all the architecture and all the agriculture of Solomon, they would be happy and satisfied. But in the end, do those things actually satisfy us. We just had a bigger house or better land or better gardens. Solomon continues his life of indulgence. You look at verse 7. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Now, these slaves were people who served Solomon in his house and in his kingdom. This was common in ancient times, and it's not like the oppressive form of slavery that many people think of. There are many people who are very wealthy who have what you'd call servants who work for them. They have chefs and maids and different people. It's not like they're in chains. What you'll find is uh, you read when uh, the queen of Sheba came to visit him, she described the works of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon, but also his workers. I've always liked her description, what she says here. First Kings 10, 6-8 in your notes. She said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom, your prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. That's the viewpoint of a foreigner. Comes into the land of Israel, into Jerusalem, sees all all that Solomon's got going on. She sees his wealth, his wisdom, his workers, and she sees how great it is. He had so much going on, it took an enormous amount of supplies just to supply the people of his own palace. Listen to these references that I have for you. 1 Kings 4, 22 through 23, Solomon's provision for one day, not a week, not a month, one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, A hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. That is a lot of game. (laughs) Probably some good eating. A core here was about six bushels or 220 liters. And so you look at how many cores, 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal. Think about how much it takes just to keep all this thing operating for one day. And here I thought trying to figure out how much food we need for one day's conference is hard. Harold knows all about that. This ties into what Solomon says next in our text. What's he say else he had in verse 7? I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I have to reference this with 1 Kings 4.26 just to give you this. He's not exaggerating. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses. For his chariots and twelve thousand horsemen—that's just one glimpse of horses, as far as animals are concerned. You just imagine that. We had three horses one time, and it was about too much to handle. Forty thousand—I mean, you—he's know, got servants taking care of all of this. Beyond all this, he still had more pleasure than these buildings and the agriculture and the animals and the servants. He had more. You come on down to verse 8. He says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. You understand Solomon routinely had wealth, gold and silver being brought to him by other kings and provinces. This was peacetime. It's not like he's out there conquering everybody, although he would win. But you understand, people are just bringing him wealth. Solomon amassed wealth beyond any this world has probably has ever, has ever seen. Now, I tried to Google and research a little bit, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I thought this was staggering. This person calculated it, and I'm not going to be pretend to know the math that he calculated it by. But some estimate that Solomon's wealth, according to today's financial indicators, would have been somewhere around $2.2 trillion. Now, Take that for a grain of salt. That's what I've figured out from a couple different sources. Whether they're right or not, I don't know. But he had a vast amount of wealth. To put that into perspective, the combined net worth of Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, J. Paul Petty, Andrew Carnegie, and John D. Rockefeller would only come close to about $1 trillion, probably less than that. Now, wouldn't you think that having such wealth Such gold and silver, you have literally lacking nothing. Don't ever have to worry about anything financially wise. Don't you think that would satisfy a person forever? Did you know that many of the people who have won the lottery are the most miserable people in the world? And they have testified to such? They don't know what to do with all this money. Some even think it's a curse. And I'm not saying it's a curse to have wealth. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a biblical biblical means of having wealth and uh, doing that, all right? But the perspective here from Solomon is that I had all of this, and it doesn't truly satisfy you. Go on. Solomon goes on to say, I got singers both men and women. He didn't have to wait for the latest album. He just bought the band. (laughs) He bought them. Come in here and sing for me. He wanted to hear music get in here he 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 owns them right next he says he got many concubines the delight of the sons of man and we know a concubine in ancient time was a woman dedicated to sexual pleasure that's essentially what they were used for they were more they were no more than really objects of sinful desire solomon had 300 of them and we learn through this understand that solomon he broke the law regarding the kings in Deuteronomy. So did David in several instances. And he reaps what he sows down the line. So don't don't think that God approves of this. I'm just giving you that for a reason. But here's the point. Sexual pleasure is prominent. It is one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, pursuits in our world. Many of you heard of Wilt Chamberlain, NBA legend and Hall of Famer. He boasts that he, in his career, had had sex with 20,000 women. 20,000 women. Now, if you think these, all these guys are being faithful, they're wives back home, they're out on the road, you're kidding yourself. Many of them are nothing but womanizers. Now, nowadays, understand, the industry of pornography permeates the culture. Why? Because people long for sexual pleasure. It is a powerful vice. But does sexual pleasure give someone lasting satisfaction? Absolutely not. It is only momentary. Momentary pleasure. See, mankind is constantly seeking satisfaction in pleasure, in self indulgence, in a variety of ways. And here's a key point in all this pursuit I want to point out it's in verse 4. Who did Solomon say it was all for? For myself I built this, I did this, and this plays into all the rest that he mentions, for myself, for myself. At the heart of a life pursuing pleasure and all of it, its indulgences is selfishness. Selfishness. A life set upon self and not the Lord, who gave life to begin with, is a life that has no satisfaction. The reality of this kind of life is a life that crumbles into nothing in the very end. Martin Luther rightly said, The empire of the whole world is but a crust to be thrown to a dog. That's essentially what it boils down to. What did Jesus say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and does what? loses his soul. So what then does Solomon conclude about all this pleasure that he's enjoyed and indulged in? Notice letter C, the exhortation from Solomon. Solomon sums up everything in verse 9 and 10. So let's read that. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. In other words, he wants what he wants, and he gets what he wants. He wants it, he's going to get it. He did not restrict himself from anything that he wanted. And all that Solomon did gave him temporal pleasure. He looks at this as, you know what? I've built this, I've done this, I've done this. I'm going to just take in the pleasure that I want. And that's how the world thinks, right? Well, I've worked hard this week, so I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to go do that. That is often sinful pleasure. But this temporal pleasure is not good enough to truly satisfy anyone or give meaning to their life. And here in verse 11, here's the conclusion of all this pleasure. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Remember, Vanity, that Hebrew word hevel, it's a it's a breath. It's like the wind. So so trying to find meaning in life is like trying to grab hold of the wind and hold on to it. Can you do that? It's impossible. The wind flees from you. You can't hold on to it. The search for happiness in anything outside of God will prove to be a disappointment in one way or another one example, Tom Brady. Many of you know who Tom Brady is, right? The NFL quarterback. Many will argue he's probably the greatest ever play with all the Super Bowls he's won and MVPs, but he was asked the question on 60 Minutes many several years ago. He says, what do you do when you have everything you thought you ever wanted and it still isn't enough? Now, Brady had already won his third Super Bowl, his second MVP. He's married to a supermodel. He has all this accomplishments, all this wealth. He's got everything he wants. Great success, he responded, he said, well, he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe it's what a lot of people would say. Hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. So for him, he says, I, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it. This, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. The interviewer asked him, well, what's the answer? Brady could only say, I wish I knew What's the real answer to that question? I wish I knew. He doesn't know the answer. He doesn't know the answer to really, where's it end? Where's it end? When does it stop? There's so many people in this life that have no clue. That they pursue everything in life and there's no true satisfaction in it. You see, those who have it all and have accomplished it all still have no true satisfaction. They're always wanting more. That's how our human mind and life works. We always want more. Scripture says the eyes of man are never satisfied. And our culture pushes this on us every day. It teaches us every day that we need something more to be satisfied, to make our life meaningful. The pleasures of this world are vastly advertised with an appeal of satisfaction, but are greatly deceiving. Greatly deceiving. And why is it that they are deceiving? Well, it's because of what Scripture tells us about all the things in this world. We read this text Sunday, 1 John 2, 16-17. John the Apostle says, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, there's no lasting pleasure in anything in this world. C.S. Lewis rightly said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And there's a lot of truth in that statement. The reason you're not going to find any satisfaction here is because you weren't made to find satisfaction here. In the beginning, our satisfaction was to be in God, not in fruit that was forbidden. You remember how Satan tempted Eve? He lured her to think she needed this. And then ultimately, what happened in Eve's sight, it became appealing through her eyes. She thought, maybe I do need this. It was a deception. And here's the reality, Christian. Even us as Christians who know God, we, if we're not careful, can become discontent and disappointed with our status in life because our minds have been affected by the culture in this present world. When we lose sight of our own purpose and the intention of our life under the sun, we will think like the discontented world around us. We can be become, disc- become discontent with even the blessings God's bestowed upon us. How many things that in our life that we at one time prayed and begged to God for and he answered, but now we're moved on to something else. We kind of take those things for granted. Oh, Lord, help me get my first car. Remember, I remember praying that, right? I want to get your first car. Then you start driving it a while and you start thinking about other things you want and you kind of take for granted how blessed you are just to have that first car. Then. Like me, your big dummy, and go wreck it, right? That's what I did. Fell asleep driving. Don't, don't, I don't encourage you to do that. Beyond the temporal, we can become forgetful of eternal things, like the gospel of Christ and our purpose in this world. What is the chief purpose of life for the Christian? Really for all of creation, but particularly think of the Christian, what is our chief purpose in life? It is the glory of God. It's not the self-indulgence of our flesh. It's the glory of God. This is truly where satisfaction is found for us. It is in God, in his gospel, in his glory. Charles Bridges comments here and says, The crumbs of the gospel are infinitely richer than the dainties of the world. And this is so true. You see, it must be our heart's desire as Christians to pursue Christ above the pleasures that are available to us because the pleasures that are available to us, they're only deceptions in light of the true things that matter. And we have a great example of a man who did this. His name was Moses. I love the life account of Moses. I really do. But Hebrews gives us some insight. Hebrews 11, 24 through 25, we read, By faith Moses, when he has grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, I love this because Moses, you understand that he was basically an adopted Egyptian. Growing up in an Egyptian's home, he had all the wealth and pleasure of Egyptians at his fingertips. All he had to do was just stay. But we know how the story goes. He got mad, murdered an Egyptian. He had to leave. God called him. Praise God for that. But based on how he was raised and where he was in Egypt, he had all at his fingertips. And here's what he says. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to do something specific, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin because that's the reality of all of these pleasures of sin. They all are fleeting. You enjoy sin for a moment, but then it's gone you're miserable for enjoying that sin. Why is that? Moses chose the right path of following the Lord. Why do you do that? Because the Lord is greater. And the pleasures with the Lord are greater than any pleasure this world could ever offer you. David said this in reference to his life, but also there's a, there's a tie to Christ and prophecy. But Psalm 1611 he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You understand that there is nothing in this world that can even come close to comparing to the joy that Christ gives to his people. Nothing. Nothing. Now, the world would have us think, you need this, you need this. We need to think, no, we don't, no, we don't. We have Christ. We have Christ. We know Christ, and Christ gives everlasting joy to us. And even when following the Lord leads to suffering, as it did with Moses in his life, we still find joy and satisfaction that the world has no clue about. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Because that's what God wants his people to have, is true and lasting joy. Now understand this too. Living with the right purpose and perspective allows us to enjoy the pleasures God has given us in life for his glory and not our own gain. Pleasure is not a bad thing. So long as it's within scriptural boundaries. So you understand, it's not a sin to pursue accomplishment. It's not a sin to achieve goals. It's not a sin to acquire wealth. It's not a sin to enjoy activities. I enjoy a good meal, don't you? It's a pleasure. I enjoy it. We know, I know we all do. We're Baptists, right? <laughs> There's a reason we fellowship twice a month. I enjoy a good round of golf, even though I'm not too good at it. Just ask Brother Ron, all right? I enjoy it. I enjoy ice cream. I enjoy taking a vacation. You can enjoy intimacy with your marriage spouse. There's all kinds of pleasures that we are meant to enjoy in this world. It's good to laugh. It's good to enjoy life. To partake in things. Solomon's going to tell us about this later. But the point here is that nothing in this life will truly satisfy us but Christ. And to pursue anything in this world outside of Christ is vanity. Pleasure without Christ is vanity. And if it's sinful pleasure, it's death. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 37, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless." things, and give me life in your ways. We're so tempted to get caught up in worthless things, vain things, because that's what the world around us likes to do. This is how Paul describes the world around us, the sinful people in the world. He calls them lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You understand? there's a demand upon every human in this world to love God, but they don't. They love pleasures instead of God. The Christian is to be the opposite. Because if you and I aren't aren't careful, there are many pleasures in this world that can bring great damage to our lives. You start getting drunk in your life, expect disappointment and damage and destruction. Don't do it. You start indulging in pornography, be aware that'll take you down. You talk you talk about anything, you start gambling and all that sort of thing, you can become addicted to that. Charles Bridges rightly said one pleasure might bring a thousand woes, and he's right. God's people must have the right purpose and perspective of what true pleasure really is. And that is found in Christ and through him. So Solomon had all these pleasures we could think of in this world. <laughs> And yet, his conclusion with all of them is, this was vanity. So, the question for us is, do we want to live our lives in the vanity of pleasure? Of course not. Then we must live our life in Christ and for Christ. And when we live in this manner, there are many pleasures that we can enjoy to the glory of God. To the glory of God. So, I pray that's a good challenge for us. And uh, this text really brings to light a lot of things that we see just in our world. So many people just need to see there's no true lasting pleasure outside of Christ. And the only way they'll ever come to know that is through the gospel of Christ. We've got to be the light of the gospel in this dark, dark sinful world.